So, one of my uh, favorite moments in the Buddhist Pali Canon, the Buddha, uncharacteristically, as an aside to the, the person he's with, says, uh, the questioner says, you know, I only teach uh, dukkha, and for this moment, just to simplify, just we'll call dukkha pain and suffering. I only teach pain and suffering and the relief of pain and suffering. That's it. Um, others have insulted me. Uh, they've harassed me. they criticized me for not teaching anything else. But I don't have any resentments because I see that what I'm teaching has helped so many people. And it's interesting because at the time the Buddha taught, 2,500 years ago, whether or not he actually existed or is a compilation of a bunch of different teachers, but certainly at the time, 2,500 years ago, the dominant spiritual text, the Upanishads, spent a lot of time talking or speculating about where the universe came from, all these tales of uh, gods and stuff like that, and the Buddha basically didn't uh, focus on any of the uh, themes or topics that were so prevalent in the other spiritual practices of his time. He refused to speculate on where the universe came from. Uh, he refused to speculate on what was the future was going to bring. He uh, did not use gods or deities as part of the spiritual program to relieve suffering and pain, or suffering at least. So um, what he did, though, offer was um, a series of profound psychological insights. And perhaps the central foundational teaching was known as the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths are pretty much the, the core observations compacted into four simple statements, or not simple, but they're easy to say, I should say, and they're, uh, each of the statements comprises uh, an observation and a thing to do. And today I'm going to be talking about the first noble truth, but I'll express them all right now. The first noble truth is that in life there is dukkha, which once again we'll call pain and suffering. You're probably aware of that by now, that in life there's some pain and suffering. Congratulations if yours hasn't had any so far. Uh, when it was first translated into the West, people mistook the language and translated as life is pain and suffering, which is not what he said. I mean, you know, maybe another spiritual practice, but that's not what the Buddha taught. Uh, the second noble truth is that there is a uh, cause for unnecessary suffering, and that we should endeavor to let go of that cause, to release it, to relinquish it. The third is that there's an actual experience available to us where we don't have to suffer needlessly. 
where there will be the pains of old age, sickness, and death, but all the other suffering we add to life will not be a part of our experience. It is possible to reside in life free of so much of the distress that occurs in life, and that this state should be experienced. And the fourth noble truth is that there's a path that leads to that state of peace, and tranquility, and that it should be practiced or cultivated. So, I'm going to focus on a part of the first noble truth tonight, uh, which is again that there is in life dukkha, and there's a um, it should be fully comprehended. It should be understood. So, uh, what is um, dukkha? Well, the, the Buddha gave a whole list, and when we, if I, re, if I recite the whole list to you, you'll see that it's much more than just pain and suffering. Uh, on one level, the Buddha says, it's birth, illness, death, aging, it's pain, sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair, it's... Uh, being stuck with people you don't love and being separated from people you love. It's um, not getting what you want, getting what you don't want, and it's the um, experience of clinging to various things like our thoughts and our feelings trying to establish an identity. So that's a lot of shit to remember, right? That's <coughs> really? That's what Dukkha is? i got to recite that list every time I... No, you don't. The Buddha actually simplified it. In one sutta, the Salatha, he breaks it down into two forms of Dukkha, which is uh, pain, emotional and physical pain that we have to experience that will happen in life, like old age, sickness, death, the, the emotional pain of losing someone we love, of the, the kick in the stomach that we feel when someone we care for goes away or dies or is uh, uh, injured or whatever. The inevitable pains. And then there's the suffering, which is not necessary, which we add on. Um, but for today, I'm going to actually use a different list, which is in the Dukkha Sutta. There's a Dukkha Sutta. And he, the Buddha breaks down dukkha into three types. And I, I like this because of the third group, which is where I'm going to be focusing on the third type of suffering. So I'm not only singling, I'm not only wheedling tonight's talk down to the first noble truth, but just to the third type of suffering. But it's pretty wonderful. So the first type of suffering, which I'm not going to be talking too much about, is dukkha dukkha. <laughs> And uh, we, we teachers, Buddhist teachers, love that because when you know, I'm hanging out with Noah or my friends Pablo or George and somebody stubs their toe or has a headache or, you know, just, you know, is suffering, we just go, dukkha dukkha, because that's all it is. It's just the sort of pain of, you know, having a human body that sometimes is un uncomfortable, whether it's from an injury or an illness or age 
the, the stuff that you can't avoid. And as you get older, you get to know, you get to be close friends with Duca Duca. Duca Duca was in my life as sciatica, which is the purest form of Duca Duca. <laughs> Duca Duca doesn't come in any more straightforward form than sciatica. Except kidney stones, which I've also had. That's also Duca Duca. So, uh, but um, the second kind of Duca is wholly unnecessary. It's called Viparinama Dukkha, and that's the suffering that comes from trying to resist change, clutching on to things uh, that are no longer satisfactory, trying to resist the change. That's, you know, for instance, it can be the suffering that comes from uh, not liking our appearance and struggling to keep up with youth or uh, not accepting when uh, a relationship or a friendship or something is no longer bringing us happiness and continually going back and trying to fix and not accepting the inevitability of flux and change and habituation and what happens over time in life. Things uh, can seem bright and shiny and wonderful due to craving before we buy them, like an iPad. And an iPad glows when you see it in the in the Apple store. Holy shit, look at this thing. Oh my god, this would be the answer to everything. It's glows and it's sleek and then you get it home and you play with it like you know. Then you wind up with an, you know, an attic or a closet filled with things that at one point in life seemed really great, but then now they've lost their glow because it's craving, it's the not having it that gave it the glow, right? And by when you get it, it loses the glow. And so, but anyway, the Viparinama is when the glow goes away. I'm trying to give it the glow back. Why? All, never resisting change or clinging on to things that are no longer available. Um, but the third kind of suffering is my personal favorite suffering. We should all have our personal favorite kinds of suffering. Um, and that's Sankara Dukkha. And it actually has a very existential quality to it. Some people outright have translated this as the Buddha's angst. You know existentialism, it's that um, angst is, and it's almost a complete uh, translation of what uh, Sankara Dukkha means. Uh, angst is that disappointment when all the belief systems that we've inherited from our parents or people around us or for the, from the dominant culture, when everything suddenly seems really fucking hollow, and you're like, holy shit, I've worked at this career for decades and all I'm left with is this watch. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so this is, what I've been doing is meaningless. When, when our belief systems don't allow us to make sense of 
the tragedy of loss or the imminence of mortality or the feelings of aging, when suddenly the, our lives are stripped of whatever we were relying on to give meaning. If you look through the suttas and you, you compare them with the writings of um, Kierkegaard and Nietzsche and uh, all the, and uh, Camus, even Sartre, there's a lot of similarities between Sankara Dukkha and Angst. I, I'd say I made a list of one, there, it's being struck by the implications of mortality. When you realize you're going to die, I don't know why I laugh at that, but I always laugh at Realization, as uh, the existentialists call it, that um, existence precedes essence. essence. Yeah, that we have no predetermined purpose. We are born into a realm without a meaning. And the third implication of that is that the meaning of our lives is actually determined by what we actually do. And for a lot of us, that can be scary, you know, like showing up to this job that doesn't mean very much, Sisyphusian day in and day out. So I don't know why I'm doing shovel, like, is any, any of you are shoveling for a living? Most of you, like, you know, wiping out the marketing or whatever, I don't know what we do these days. I really don't know what anybody does. Where people used to make things, but that's quaint. Uh, <laughs> so we, we show up, but there's, uh, then there's a realization that it's actually what we're doing, our actions, our intentions that create meaning for our life. And holy shit, that's scary. And then uh, there's a disruption of our certainties, the feeling of them falling away. And the feeling of of losing interest in so many of the things that used to create meaning. I remember my dad, even, my dad was a Buddhist. I'm a second generation Buddhist, but my dad still had that sort of, uh, uh, it's, it's not even midlife, it's three quarters of your way through life depression, where he used to look at Different. Uh, he used to love photography, and he had these photo magazines that he'd look at and stare at the, the old cameras and the Leicas. And then one day, it just didn't. You could see it didn't have the magic anymore. That realization that there's no longer even the belief that craving something external is going to alleviate that feeling of what's the point of this. So that's uh, Sankara Dukkha, the, uh, the existential angst. And the Buddha used the word Nata Paraniya, which means to deeply know. His instruction with all forms of suffering is our job, since there is suffering in life, is to deeply know it. Now that sounds pretty, pretty masochistic, right? Sounds like downright God. 
deeply know suffering? Who wants to do that? <laughs> but the reason is because the Buddha actually believed that if we wanted to achieve greater peace of mind in life, a greater sense of purpose, a greater sense of ease in our own skin, um, we had to know very well those states which were standing in the way of our happiness. You can't achieve happiness or peace if you don't know what brings an end to it, what is the nature of that which is um, suffering. So, in order to do this, we should bear in mind that when people experience suffering, whether it's the suffering of loss, the suffering of pains in the body, or the suffering of feeling purposeless in one's life, not having a meaning, not having, like, wondering what it's all about, why am I bothering, what am I getting out of bed for, for you know, what's the reason? Uh, the Buddha said that when we're confronted with dukkha, the normal run-of-the-mill, he always uses that word, run-of-the-mill. Nobody likes to think of themselves as run-of-the-mill. It's kind of like his, I guess he's sort of like degrading the sort of normal uh, response. But he says the average person will do one of two things. They'll take it very personally. Why me? Why am I aging? Why, am I got, why do I have body pains? Why do I experience loss? Why do I have relationships that don't work out? Why do, um, you know, why do I feel lost in life, not knowing what I'm here for, a feeling of, of drifting through my days without something animating? And, of course, the Buddha's response to that is that this is not a, a personal experience. This is a universal experience. We all feel these experiences, but the way we unskillfully relate or react at first is by taking it personally, and this creates delusion. He called this delusion. That taking it personally creates a not knowing what to do. We get stuck up in thinking it's all about ourselves. Holy shit, I had a depressing thought. I'm really fucked. Uh, and then the second thing he, say, he said we do is we look for an immediate short-term escape that feels good. This would be, in case you can't imagine, uh, for if you're keeping score, sex, drugs, alcohol, uh, shopping, workaholism, gambling, uh, TV binges, Facebooking excessively, uh, and on. So anything that diverts our attention from suffering that gives us a quick out, that doesn't address the suffering, that's what the Buddha says is essentially um, the escapist kind of tendencies that also lead to no solution. So between the taking it personally, which leads to confusion or delusion, and the seeking escape or distraction, the Buddha says we never really fully address or get to know what's causing or what's the nature and diversity of our suffering in life that we can address. 
And so the first, there, there's a list of things that actually are skillful to do when we experience distress. And the first is what he called Nakama and Karuna. Now, Nakama is simply relinquishing whatever addictive strategy we have. For instance, when we feel loneliness, we might feel the pull of the television set because it gives the illusion that there are people in our lives. Or when we're feeling disconnected with others, we might feel the pull of Facebook because a post that gets liked makes it feel like we're connected to people. Where when we're anxious, the pull of alcohol, um, or when we feel we hate our jobs, the pull of the credit card, which gives the illusion that there's a meaning to our work. So all these things, the Buddha says, let's put them aside for a little while, not forever, for a little while, and let's try something else. Let's actually try to be with the experience, not try to get rid of it. Let's try to learn from it. And the, the, the partner of Nakama's Karuna, which is compassion. If we're suffering, greet it with kindness, not trying to make it go away, but find where this suffering is. So, for instance, if I'm bored, it's very easy to blame the world around me if it's not being stimulating enough. But instead, if I focus inwards, I'll find that boredom is actually a kind of anxiousness that there's not enough of external distractions and I begin to feel uncomfortable in my own skin, often because there's an emotion that I don't want to feel coming up. And so when we begin to work with um, this, we find where the suffering is and then we send it compassionate thoughts. It's okay. I'm here, I'll take care of us. You know, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, or uh, we can use the I love you, keep going phrase. Whatever meta phrase you like, whatever compassionate words, just send them to the suffering, whether it's in the chest, if we feel lonely or abandoned in the chest, or frightened in the stomach, or if the suffering is in a jumpy mind, just cultivate thoughts of kindness to an image of ourselves. This way we can be with distress, depression, sadness, uh, all kinds of, of despair without running from it. And we develop this new uh, experience of being able to investigate. And this is the second uh, the third quality, which is called Dhamma Vikaya, and it means the Buddha said to investigate, to begin to observe and see, you know, what sustains our suffering and what begins to change the way we are with it so that we can be with it, rather than it being something that just uh, consumes us. For example, if I'm suffering in a relationship, I might want to investigate the expectations that I've brought into it. I might want to investigate how much energy or attention I'm putting into the relationship or how much I've abandoned other friendships outside of that relationship. I might want to investigate um, being creative. 
if I'm suffering in my creative life. It might be that I'm expecting too much approval from other people and not enjoying the process enough. So this is, is basically a permission when we're experiencing discomfort, suffering, uh, distress, any kind of, uh, of obsessive mind states in life to begin to experiment, change how we're tending to it. Sometimes simply refocusing awareness on the body can change an experience enough that we can be with a depression or a feeling of sadness or loss so that we can process it. Sometimes uh, we can simply bring in another awareness such as this will pass. All things arise, all things pass. All life is conditioned. In fact, uh, it's interesting, the Dukkha Sankara, Sankara Dukkha is another way of saying the existential angst of living in a conditioned realm where all things arise and pass without a transcendent meaning, and yet that fact can sometimes be alleviating the knowledge that anything that arises in our life will change. Even chronic pain changes. I've done work in hospices, and I've been at long-term care facilities, and I can tell you that there when you see people who have chronic pain, chronic illness, still there's good days, there's bad days, there's days when the, the discomfort changes. So everything in life is in flux. Now, one way of summarizing this is um, to be with suffering, but to not be the sufferer. What that means, I'll say that again, to be with suffering, not be the sufferer. When we begin to examine or investigate with Dhamma Vikaya our experience, we don't view it in terms of self. What does this mean? Like, am I the only one? Why am I sad? Why am I uh, lonely? Why am I feeling purposelessness in my life? Why am I feeling um, doubt? Why am I feeling uh, whatever we're feeling? To note that experience, but to not claim it as mine. To simply work with the assumption that anything we experience is part of the human experience, is not ours alone. Sometimes this can be alleviated by sharing about it with friends in a spiritual center or other close friends that you know are wise or tolerant to the, what makes suffering so much uh, unbearable is the shame of concealment so if we open up we begin to experience or hear or understand in a deep way that what we are going through is not uniquely ours to be in suffering means to investigate it but to not be the sufferer means to not take it personally. So we simply see, right now, where is the discomfort in my life? And what subtle changes can I make that I can alleviate it or simply reduce enough of the mental agitation that I can be with it? 
a lot of the times this can simply boil down to bringing some of the awareness into the body, into the breath, to share, to do the practice. Now, when we begin to investigate and pull apart and work with rather than run from suffering, there are three kind of uh, profound insights that begin to occur. I'm just speaking from experience and from some of this is in the canon, but this is my summary of what you can expect. The first is that um, as the Buddha said in the Salafa Sutta, that we begin to see how much of our discomfort in life is in resistance of just trying to push away, escape, uh, not feel what's present. But when we actually turn to whatever emotional state is going on in our lives and we greet it with compassion and we relax around it, we find that we can be, we can be with so many states that we never thought we could. I've certainly lost my fair share of people to sudden death in life. I've seen people tragically go from complete health to non-existence. And I've seen just how much of the reaction to life that happens from loss is inevitable, but how much also is added by this constant need of the mind to turn suffering into words that can file away sadness or grief or despair. And when we stop doing that, when we simply sit with the feelings, we can actually be with them. But the mental agitation of trying to make sense of life, why did this relationship fall apart? Why did this job go away? Why did this person not return my phone call? Why did this person die, leave? When we try to make sense of life, that's resistance, actually. That's trying to make, come up with a thought that will make it all go away, make it all so we can neatly file it into a nice filing cabinet so that we don't have to feel the feelings. When we actually sit with what's happening in the body, the breath, this, the emotional experience, we can actually be with it. It's the desire to escape, to resist, to run away that causes this misery, the agitation of running away, coming back, running away, coming back. The second profound realization is that the mind's tendency to link up things that feel difficult as being bad and believing that what feels easy and good must be good becomes problematized, becomes complicated. The Buddha said you could tell the difference between a fool and a wise person simply because the wise person knows that some things that are good in the long term are really fucking uncomfortable at the beginning. But it's only through sitting through dukkha that we begin to see this. For example, when you first start meditating, it sucks. It really does. Except for there's always one person in the crowd. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> you know, holy shit. There's something wrong with me. Um, you know, like going to the gym. There's not a human being in the world who likes going to the gym. I still don't like going to the gym. I don't go to the gym. I just work out at home. But, uh, you know, you go to the gym, like you're with a five-pound weight. You know, like you see these things like, you know, and they're awful. And uh, you're like, I don't want to have anything to do with this. And yet, if you do it long enough, theoretically, good things happen over time. Uh, you know, so much of the uh, making friends as an adult really sucks. <laughs> That's why so many people, the, all their friends only consist of the people they work with and the people that, you know, if they have children, the other, you know, parents of other children at the park. Oh, that's your kid? Okay. <laughs> because there's nothing more difficult and frightening and, and filled with the possibility of rejection than reaching over to somebody and going, hey, hi. I'm blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah, you know, here, before, after, you know, introducing yourself to someone. Um, it's really fucking horrible. <laughs> and yet, if we go through it over time, it pays off. The skill to, to make new wise friends over the course of life, it's really, really hard. It requires risk and opening up and vulnerability, and nobody likes that. Because it's filled with the possibility of somebody not calling us back or giving us a weird look. And yet it's the only way to establish secure, lasting connections in life. And finally, the third realization is that some forms of, of depression and sadness are absolutely necessary to move on in life emotionally. I've met a lot of people who are stuck in relational patterns in life that they can't evolve out of people who only are attracted to other people who are not interested in them. That kind of sucks, right? <laughs> I only like her or him if they don't like me, but if they like me, I'm not interested in them. Well, good fucking luck. <laughs> that's not going to... That's not a story with a happy ending. But as the psychologist Bowlby said, the only way a child has been abandoned by its, its caretakers ever moves through that relational experience and is able to move on and begin to find new relationships is through grief and sadness and despair. The wonderful psychologist Alice Miller in the drama of The Gifted Child, a wonderful book, talks about the necessary... Uh, experience of grieving early abandonments and early rejections in life if we want to have any chance of moving through. Our attempts not to feel sad don't work. They keep us stuck. It's only when we actually attend to the feelings of sadness, frustration, you know, why didn't I get some more acceptance at this point or that point in my life and really feeling that that 
we really have a chance of opening up to life as it really is. So our tendencies to escape suffering actually backfire. They keep us stuck. So this is a long-winded way of saying, rather than running to our addictions or our distractions or our ways of not feeling good, sometimes the spiritual practice lies in turning to face dukkha. Not the paramiya. Sitting with it, getting to know it, learning what makes it tick, what allows us to be with it, feeling it in the body. And if we do that, we begin to see which experiences in life are necessary and which experiences in life help us process life. So I hope there was something worthwhile. I thank you for listening.